0: Well, as I was saying a couple of weeks ago, I finished a really, really interesting book entitled uh, The Fall of the Roman Empire, and uh, not perhaps the one that, you're, that you might be thinking of by Gibbons. This is a much shorter book. It's by a fellow by the name of Michael Grant, The Fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, it was just really, really an excellent book. I do commend it to you. And I want to read to you just a little bit uh, from his introduction uh, to this To this book. In that introduction, he writes the following just listen to this. He says, and I quote The fall of the Western Roman Empire was one of the most significant transformations throughout the whole of human history. A hundred years before it happened, Rome was an immense power defended by an immense army. A hundred years later, power and army had vanished. There was no longer any Western empire at all. Its territory was occupied by a group of German kingdoms. He continues, It was brought down by two kinds of destruction. Invasions from outside and weaknesses that arose within. The invasions are easy to identify However, they are not sufficiently formidable in themselves to have caused the empire to perish. It perished because of certain internal flaws which prevented resolute resistance to the invaders. A little later in the same introduction, he writes, I have identified 13 defects which, in my view, combined to reduce the Roman Empire to final paralysis and this is what caught my eye they display a unifying thread the thread of disunity each defect consists of a specific disunity which split the empire wide apart and thereby damaged the capacity of the romans to meet external aggressions so I read the book, I, in the, in the flyleaf, I ticked off the 13 defects, kind of putting them in my own words as I went. And So let me just quickly, I'm just going to read through them with you. Here they are. Number one, a large and expensive military. Number two, military service falling upon the poorer members of society. Number three, growing military budgets as the emperors sought to retain the goodwill of the generals. Four, urban welfare roles financially supported by rural farmers. Five, heavy property taxes impoverishing the small farmers. Six, excessive taxation leading to rampant Tax dodging. Seven, a long term debasement of the money supply resulting in inflation eating away at people's standard of living. Eight, the loss of personal freedom resulting in a stifled personal initiative. Nine, reduced productivity as 175 days per year were given over to entertainment and recreational activities. Ten, the wealthy avoiding public service in order to pursue a life of leisure. Eleven, the ruling class losing contact with their constituents, resulting in a bloated and corrupt bureaucracy. 12, two systems of justice, one for the rich, one for the poor. And thirteen, ethnic disunity brought about by the Romans' disdain for the Germanic tribes whom they considered as racially inferior. Sobering, huh? Jesus said in Mark 3:24, "If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand." And what is true of kingdoms is true of churches. A church divided cannot stand. So the unity of the local church is not an academic subject, but intensely practical. And necessary. So open, if you're not already, to the fourth chapter of Ephesians as we return for a fourth week to a sermon which is turning into a series entitled Christian Unity, and Elusive Jewel, verses 1 through 16 of the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church the Ephesians. We're organizing our study here of these 16 verses utilizing the format of a question and answer rather than the more traditional just verse by verse exposition. And the reason we're doing that is because the topic of unity is so big and so important and, and has so many threads and strands that attach to it. I I think the only way we can try to do it justice is to look at it in a Q&A format. And so that's what we've been doing, and that's what we're going to continue to do. So last week, we spent the majority of our time last week looking at verses 4 through 6 and asking and answering a question, and the question was, what role does theology play in unity? What role does theology play in unity? Paul writes here, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What role does theology play in the unity of a local church? We looked at that in some detail, and and as we broke it apart in verses 4, 5, and 6, we, we organized it around the following statements for verse 4. And it was that we share the same spirit and thus the same destiny. In verse 5, we share the same Lord and thus the same allegiance to the gospel. And in verse 6, we share the same sovereign father and thus the same family identity. That's how we looked at those verses. And you'll remember that last time I skipped over the end of verse 5 where it says one baptism. And I told you that we would return to that because there just wasn't enough time last week to adequately deal with that statement. So that's where we are. We are back to verse 5. And I want to take up the discussion with you of baptism this morning. And specifically, I want to ask and answer this question, what role does baptism play in church unity? What role does baptism play in church unity? Now, you may never have thought of baptism in that kind of a of an, uh, format any time in your life. But I think this morning, as we begin to look at this and and tease it out, I think you will see how significant it is that Paul would include that statement here in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So I think the best way to get at this question, what role does baptism play in church unity, is to make some observations, actually five of them. So I want to make five observations about baptism And once we have made those observations, I think it will be much more obvious the answer to the question, what role does baptism play in church unity? After these five observations, I think you will be able to answer that question. So here they are. Okay, Five observations. First one. Baptism was commanded by Jesus. First observation. Baptism was commanded. Commanded by Jesus. So you need to turn with me, please, to Matthew's Gospel and the 28th chapter. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is only one verb in this Great Commission. One verb, and the verb is to make disciples. That is the command, that is the imperative. It is to make disciples. Grammatically, there are three participles that draw upon the main verb, this main imperative verb, and derive from it their own imperatival nature. They are to go, or going, literally, baptizing, and teaching. So there is one command. The command is to make disciples. And there are these three participles, which are the means by which we fulfill the command to make disciples. Said another way, we make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. We go to the lost, and we preach to them the gospel. And if they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting and turning from their sin, then we are to proceed to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we are to teach them. We are to teach them all that I commanded you, verse 20. In other words, at a minimum, it would be the contents of Matthew's gospel, although I think very easily we could expand that to say that it is the scriptures in their totality. We are to teach the scriptures. How do we make disciples? We go and preach the gospel to them. If they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we baptize them, and then we teach them to be obedient, to be in humble submission to the word of God. This is how we make disciples. This fits in very clearly, by the way, with the very word disciple itself. To be a disciple is to be brought into a relationship of pupil and teacher. It is to accept what Jesus says as true because he says it and submitting to it as right because he says so. In other words, it involves knowing and doing the will of God. This is what it means to be a disciple. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 11 and verse 28, Jesus says, "'Take my yoke upon you and learn from me.'" For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke, take the yoke of discipleship upon you, and learn from me. Learn from me. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Back to the idea of hearing and doing the word of God. And we get that. We're, we're, we don't have any problems with that. But sometimes I think we struggle with the other part of the statement here, the baptizing part. It is not enough in the process of making disciples to, to simply teach them the scriptures where Jesus linked two things together here, baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. In other words, baptism is essential to the process of discipleship, just like teaching the scriptures are essential to the process of discipleship. Neither one of them are optional. Second observation, baptism makes public our commitment to be Christ's disciples. Baptism makes public our commitment to be the disciples of Christ. Go with me over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, it is Pentecost, 50 days following the Passover. You know the context here. Spirit comes upon the, the disciples, and they're speaking in other languages that they don't know. And there are gathered there in the city of Jerusalem Jewish people from all over the known world, and they and they hear these people speaking of the glory of God in their own native language or their own native tongue, and they're they're wowed by it all. Some scoffers say, "Well, these they're just drunk. That's what the that's the problem." And Peter, of course, says, "Hey, it's it's way early in the morning. It's too early to be drunk." That's not the answer. And Peter begins this powerful sermon in which he indicts the Jewish people for their rejection and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, their own Messiah. And when he finishes there in verse 37, we only have an abbreviated a version of the sermon here we have a true account but it is not a full account it's an abbreviated account but verse 37 now when they heard this what did they hear how about verse 36 therefore let all the house of israel know for certain that god has made him that is jesus both lord and christ This jesus whom you crucify when they heard that They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? In other words, we have killed our own Messiah. What do we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. "...for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God call will call to himself." And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, "...be saved from this perverse generation." So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What do we do? We've killed our own Messiah. Repent. Turn 180 degrees... And be baptized in the name of the very one who you 40 or 50 days earlier had called for his crucifixion. When you had said, We have no king but Caesar, away with this man, give us Barabbas. If you have truly come to understand who Jesus is and who, what God has done through him, then turn from that wicked pronouncement and instead publicly identify with the very one whom you crucified. Be baptized in his name. In other words, no secret followers. No secret Disciples. In fact, if you look at John's Gospel in John chapter twelve, John twelve, verses forty two and forty three. There in the temple during the Passion Week, where Jesus had been disputing with the leadership of Israel, he, he finally turns and, and walks from them, leaves them. Matthew recounts his his, um, his confrontation and, and his, his judgment upon them with, the, with the, pronouncing the curse upon the people for the blood of the righteous prophets from the beginning But John inserts in verses 42-43 this interesting statement. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. In other words, John is here censuring secret discipleship. He's saying the time to be quiet in your following of of the Messiah has passed. No more coming to him at night, Nicodemus. Now you must make the stand. Are you with him or not? And of course we know how Nicodemus came forward, right? To retrieve the body and to arrange for its burial. No more was he a secret disciple. So here in Acts 2... In the Sermon on Pentecost, Peter is saying the same thing to the nation at large. Now is the time to be counted. Are you with him or not? If you are with him, make it known. Make it known. I cannot prove this, but I am persuaded of it, so I will give it to you to contemplate yourself. But if you will turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. the middle of the context there of chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is taking up the question of what about Israel, if God saves, if nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, a natural question is, what about Israel, for they Uh, have the covenants of God, yet it appears that they have been completely cut off. And so Paul addresses that. In chapter 9, he talks about the sovereignty of God and his secret election. In chapter 10 here, he talks about Jewish unbelief. And in chapter 11, he talks about their restoration. But in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, and we know this well, we, we recite this often, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I'd like to just offer for your consideration that this is a confession that would naturally fit into a baptismal scenario. That in the waters of baptism, one confesses with their mouth Jesus as Lord, having believed in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead. As they say, "I cannot prove it to you, but I offer it for your consideration." Baptism makes public our commitment to be Christ's disciples. Third observation. Third observation. Water baptism symbolizes our spiritual baptism and resultant unity with Christ. Water baptism was given to us to symbolize the greater reality of our spiritual union and resulting unity with Christ. Right baptism symbolically, it's a symbol it's not the water, it's not the, con- uh, the, the, the um, amount of the water. It's, it's merely an external symbol that has been given that portrays a very profound reality. And the reality that portrays is the believer's union with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. As one author says... This is expressed symbolically in the descent into the water and immersion beneath its surface. The grave has received the self and closed over it. The self is dead and buried. Then the watery grave opens and out comes a new man, no longer the old with his inclination towards sin, but one inwardly opposed to sin and turned to the grace of God in Christ in principle, walking in newness of life. What a beautiful picture of the profound spiritual reality of our death, burial and resurrection in union with Jesus Christ. The New Testament speaks of this spirit baptism, or spirit, excuse me, spiritual baptism, in a number of places, just to remind you of a few of them, but First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. First Corinthians 12:13 For by one Spirit or in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free we were all made to drink of one Spirit. This is a dry verse. I know water here. But it speaks of the fact that we have been immersed into the one body. We have been plunged into the one body, a body that is in union one with another, Jew and Greek, right? We're all possessed of the same one spirit. Paul spoke of that in chapter 3 of Ephesians. We can look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 27 and 28. Verse 27, Galatians 3, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, you become united with Christ. been baptized into Christ, you've been immersed into Christ, you become united with Christ, and in your union with Christ... All of the earthly, horizontal things that separate us are obliterated. It doesn't mean there are no more men and no more women. It doesn't mean that someone's still not you know, a Gentile, or someone's not a Jew, or someone's not a free man or a slave or whatever. None of, it doesn't mean that they go away. What it means is their significance is obliterated. and We're one in union together. Or Paul's words in Romans chapter 6. By the way, Galatians 3 is another dry verse. These are all dry verses I'm giving you. Galatians, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6. Paul, having come off of chapter 5 and our our union with Christ in which His obedience is credited to us, right? Adam's transgression becomes ours. Christ's obedience becomes ours. That's Paul's argument there in chapter 5. And in chapter 6, Paul takes it up again, and he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Because wherever sin is, grace is greater, Paul says. So, should we just keep sinning and let God continue to pour on the grace? Answer, verse 2, what are you, nuts? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin, still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? That is, we've been immersed into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We have been baptized, spiritually immersed in Christ, and thus participated in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. Paul goes on to say, "...for if we have become united to him in the likeness of his death," verse 5, "...certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. In other words, Jesus has conquered death, and death is the ultimate consequence of sin. So his conquering of death and the resurrection is the evidence of his conquering of sin. In union with him, we too have died been buried, and been raised to a newness of life in which sin no longer holds over us the ability to force us to do its will. Now, we still sin, often. And the reason we sin is because we are forgetful. In other words, we can't remember in the moment who we really are. We're not who we used to be, united to Adam, we are now united to Christ. We forget that reality and we begin to act reflexively according to the way of the old man. Or we doubt the power of the gospel to deliver us from temptation in the moment. And so we give in. But if we have moved from Adam to Christ, the turnstile goes in one direction. We have been raised from the dead. We have been raised from the dead. One more for you, just so you can see that this theme is prominent in Paul's thinking and writing. Colossians chapter 2. What does it mean? To be baptized into Christ. Verse 13, chapter 2 of Colossians Did I say thirteen? I meant twelve. If I said thirteen, Colossians chapter two, verse twelve—that's the one I want. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We have been buried in our baptism. We have been buried into Christ in our spiritual baptism, and we have been raised with Christ to the newness of life. We have been united with our Savior. Water baptism is God's given symbol for that theological reality. And so when one is baptized, one is acting out, as it were, putting on display the theological reality that has occurred. That's why we are only baptized once. That's why you're only baptized once, because that is, that transformation from our union with Adam to our union with Christ only happens once. And it can never be undone. Just as Jesus can never die again, so we who have been united with Christ can never more, ever again, live in union with Adam. It's been severed. We have died to it. And we're alive in Christ. So a third observation is water baptism symbolizes our spiritual baptism and resultant unity with Christ. That takes us to number four. Fourth observation. Baptism was practiced by the apostolic church. It was practiced by the apostolic church. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is as we look at a book of Acts, what we see repeatedly through the book of Acts is when someone believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are immediately Baptized. And let me show that to you. We've looked at Acts chapter 2 already, and you saw what had happened there. They believed, 3,000 believed, 3,000 were baptized. But take a look over to Acts chapter 8. Let's just kind of begin to work our way quickly through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. The gospel now goes out because of the great persecution in Jerusalem. It goes out to the Samaritans. So Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. They were being baptized. They heard the good news, and they were baptized. Verses 35 and following of the same chapter, where we're introduced to the Ethiopian eunuch, a God-fearer. Verse 34, the eunuch answers Philip and says, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? NESB includes this, this verse we could... So I'll read it for you. And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse thirty eight, he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. He believed, and he was baptized. Interesting question, though, to think about is, how did the eunuch know that he needed to be baptized? Right? Because he was reading Isaiah 53. That's not about baptism. So how did this God-fearer know he needed to be baptized? Can't prove it? I'd suggest to you that Philip told him. That Philip told him. If you believe, you need to be baptized. But in any case, he believes and he wants it. Look, water, what stops me? What prevents me? Nothing. If you believe, you should be baptized. And Philip does it. By the way, in verse 39, where they're coming up out of the water, I think is an indication that it was an immersion baptism. Okay? They came up out of the river. You're just going to pour water on somebody's head. You don't need to go down into the river to do it. So I think it was immersion. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. The Apostle Paul. In verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, And immediately there fell from his, that's Paul's eye, something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. He got up and was baptized. Immediately upon believing, Paul was baptized. Keep going. Acts chapter 10. 10. 10. Peter's bringing the gospel to Cornelius. Pick it up in verse 44. Cornelius and his household. By the way, I'll just establish this for you, that, uh, that uh, verse 24 of the same chapter says, On the following day, he, that is Peter, entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius is waiting for them, and it called together his relatives and close friends. Okay, just hang on to that. Okay, because I believe it's a pretty clear indication that we're talking about adults here. Verse 44, "...while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message." All the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can they? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. They believed, and they were baptized. Chapter 16. The gospel goes to Europe. Paul's second missionary journey. He arrives there in Europe, the city of Philippi. He encounters this woman named Lydia. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She believed and was baptized. It said it includes her household I would suggest that that is a reference to the servants who were part of her household as opposed to children. I think that's an unwarranted influence for this woman. Chapter 18. Paul in Corinth. Chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus... The leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized, being baptized. You can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Some turn here and say that baptism wasn't that big a deal for Paul. And they would cite 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, as their evidence of that. I believe they are misreading the text. Paul says here, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So there, in Paul's own words, he's saying that he wasn't sent out to baptize. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, the problem here is people are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. There was a, this disunity in the church, and Paul is saying, listen, you weren't baptized in my name as if your allegiance is to me. Your allegiance is to the gospel. That is your greater allegiance. And I did baptize some, and I love Paul's poor memory here. The <laughs> older I get, I can more I can identify with it. I probably baptized a few others of you, I just can't Remember? Okay, how human that is, isn't it? The problem he's addressing here is the, is the conflict over personalities, not whether someone has been baptized or not. Okay, so I think it's pretty clear to say that from the book of Acts, that baptism was performed on all people without exception who came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith was always the precondition of their baptism. But if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ according to the testimony of the book of Acts, you were baptized. And you were baptized quickly after believing. Soon thereafter. And that takes me to number five's observation. Number five, water baptism was expected of a follower of Christ. Water baptism was expected of a follower of Christ. And let me show you what I mean by this. If you go to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. Paul's here at Ephesus. And he encounters some disciples of John the Baptist. First one, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, into what then were you baptized? Stop right there. If you claim to be a follower of Christ... Paul has an assumption that you were baptized, thus his question of them well then what into what were you baptized? He doesn't say, Were you baptized? He's operating on the assumption that you were baptized, and that somehow your theology must be faulty in all of this. And they said to him we were the only baptism we ever got was John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So again, we see belief followed by baptism immediately. But the material point I wanted you to see here was Paul's assumption when he came across people who claimed to be followers of Christ that they must have been baptized. And he questioned them. How can you be a follower of Christ? And, you know, into what were you baptized? And they say, we weren't. So, in other words, apart from the thief on the cross, apart from the thief on the cross, there is no record of a follower of Christ who is not baptized. It's just not there. You can't find it in the New Testament. So, Back to Acts chapter four, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter four. And let me ask the question of you again. What role does baptism play in church unity? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Water baptism sets the visible boundaries of the professing church. It sets forth the visible boundaries of the professing church. In other words, it's a boundary marker between who is in and who is not in the church, the body of Christ. And it is by virtue of their public identification with Christ now, let me quickly hasten to say the apostles understood and would agree that not everyone who is water baptized is a true follower of Christ. That's not what they would say, and it's certainly not what I'm saying. Okay? Certainly in Acts chapter 8 and verse 21, we have Simon Magnus. He was baptized and proved to be immediately not a follower of Christ. We can think about Demas. So baptism does not make you a follower of Christ. Baptism is a public declaration that you are a follower of Christ. But it would have been inconceivable for the apostles to consider someone who claimed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who had not yet been baptized. They don't have a category for it. The New Testament does not have a category for it. Therefore, Paul says, look at verse 5 again, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In other words, that baptism is the defining mark of our union with Christ and our entrance into the family of God. It is the visible sign of the reality. It is not the reality, but it's the sign that points to the reality. And someone who is not baptized... In the eyes of the New Testament, there is a question whether you really are in the body of Christ or not. Now, maybe you're not baptized because you, didn't, you don't understand. And so, hopefully, this morning, this is helping you to understand. But if you understand and you refuse, then there is legitimate reason to ask Are you really in the body or not? If you are, declare it. Declare it. And God has given you the means to do it. He's left two signs, two symbols, right? Baptism and the Lord's table. Baptism is a sign of our unity together. Commentators, some of them stand on their head, by the way, in verse 5, as to why Paul doesn't mention communion here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, no communion. Why doesn't he talk about communion here? And I think the answer is, is because communion is a celebration of our unity. Baptism is a declaration of our unity. It's a declaration. And beloved, I think it's a non sequitur. A non sequitur, Latin, it does not follow. It does not follow to celebrate our unity when we are unwilling to declare our unity. In the most compassionate way I can think of, if you were here this morning, And you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have yet to be baptized. Here's water. What stops you? You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. And if we have to tear that thing down, okay, I'm all for it. Lovely as it is. You understand? If you want to be a disciple of Christ, baptism is not an option it's not an option let's pray our father these words are not easy to say or easy to hear particularly for those who have been resistant for some time now. There is the the whole buildup of pride involved coming forward and admitting that someone has not been baptized. But Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would overcome any barriers that the evil one might erect among your people, that our own sinful hearts might deceive us by whispering in our ears, it's not that big a deal, it's not that important. Thief on the cross was a Christian, he wasn't baptized, oh Lord, may you not allow us to flee to such a flimsy excuse. But Father, may you work among us as we as a people of God in obedience to your word and the lordship of Christ, may we declare first to one another And then to the world at large, that Jesus is Lord. We ask in his name, amen.